The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Well, it's Monday morning. You're watching Squawkbox with Karen Cho, myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. Oil prices getting a lift after Saudi Arabia pledges to cut output by another 1 million barrels per day in July onwards. The kingdom's energy minister, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, speaking exclusively to CNBC and defending that decision. The word means we're hedging, which is hedging against an unknown. Taking a precautionary measure uh, tend to put you in the safe side. Uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average uh, notching its best day since January. 700 points to the upside as traders cheer a strong U.S. jobs report and the debt ceiling debate disappears with President Biden signing the bill into law. It was critical to reach the agreement. And it's very good news for the American people. No one got everything they wanted, but the American people got what they needed. We averted an economic crisis, an economic collapse. The IMF's managing director, Kristalina Gorgieva, praises the resilient U.S. labor market, but tells CNBC exclusively the Federal Reserve can't take its foot off the pedal just yet. We don't yet see a significant slowdown in uh, lending. Uh, there is some, but not on the scale that would lead to the Fed stepping back. ECB Hawk and Croatian Central Bank Governor Boris Rucek stresses a strong reliance on the data, telling CNBC exclusively rate rises will only stop when economic indicators allow. We are still in the, in the uh, hiking cycle. Uh, until when? We will have to see and it will really depend on the data. I don't know. Uh, I, I have no idea. Uh, we have to see how the data will come in. And defence ministers meeting on the sidelines of the Shangri-La dialogue in Singapore, pledging to step up support for Ukraine, with Germany's Boris Pistorius telling CNBC the country's weapons manufacturers are working around the clock. They are on the path, they are doing everything which is possible, they are coordinating and coordinated, and I think they will be successful in, their, in, their, in what they are doing. Good morning, how are you? Good morning, welcome back. It's lovely to be back as well, uh, rather than sitting in a, a field in glorious Cornwall. Um, well, half, I think half the, uh, the city of London was out there. Look, I, I've gone away for one week and all of a sudden everything is relaxed in the paddock. We're in a Goldilocks scenario. Uh, Biden has signed the uh, debt ceiling increase bill. Um, no worries about the payroll. No worries about inflation, despite the fact that the market's having to turn around its view on rate cuts in July to protect rate hikes in June as well. We've had an OPEC meeting as well. And actually, despite all the furore and concern, and we'll get to Dan with some brilliant, brilliant interviews and tape in a few moments time as well. Everyone seems very, very relaxed. Earnings recession has disappeared. 
Are we too complacent? Yeah, I think there's a lot of work behind the scenes. I mean, one of the big topics she didn't touch on was the geopolitics. And what, over the weekend, we've had a whole bunch of spy chiefs getting together, trying to figure out the trade war. I mean, this is telling you how significant that uh, story could still be for the economic growth mm. picture. And I was having a terrific conversation with Dubrovnik over the weekend, part of an IMF, Croatian National Bank conference. And effectively, one of the issues is if the trade war doesn't get solved, we could effectively see problems in terms of green transition, how we saw some of the, the really components. ignorant question. I'm up in a way. Which trade war are we talking about? We're talking about the one between the UK and Europe, and Europe and US, US and China, because US there's more China. than one going on out well, there. Well, US and China. The, the yeah. great fear is that if you do see this decoupling, um, this was from uh, Christina Gorgeva herself from the IMF saying... Which this who is, you interviewed on your little holiday at the weekend. Exactly, on my little getaway, yeah. that uh, this is the equivalent of taking Japan... Uh, and other major nations like Germany out of uh, the global growth story. I mean, that's quite a significant hit. Just by the way, no one is fooled uh, at all. By the, um, and I'll show you the pictures later on, ladies and gentlemen. No one's going to be fooled at all that you were working this weekend. Oh, I mean, it was stunning. Summer has arrived in Dubrovnik. I would definitely recommend your, your camera going. operator sent me a picture of him having a beer on Friday evening, just <laughs> chilling out. Yes, what? Exactly. Some gigs are tougher than others. But the reality <laughs> is... I think, I think we discussed that before I went away, that I actually can't speak about an easy right. gig occasion. It was like your version of Ambrosetti uh, and yeah, Dubrovnik yeah. was uh, absolutely... Anyway, uh, Dan's on holiday in Vienna, and my goodness <laughs> me, he's been doing some great work as well. So let's get to what's been going on in Vienna. OPEC, Saudi Arabia, has pledged additional voluntary oil production cuts, aiming to lower output by one million barrels per day in July and from July. Potentially. It's a biggest reduction in years. This after OPEC and its allies agreed to maintain current oil production targets and reduce them from next year. Voluntary cuts will also be extended until the end of 2024 as the oil group aims to limit combined oil production to 40.4 million barrels per day. Quick look at the oil price. And I've got to be honest, I'm, I'm once again, I'm against a lot of the oil experts out there. And I've read them all over the last 24 hours. Look at that. You've done this another massive cut from Saudi, voluntary cut from Saudi as well, taking all the heavy uh, lifting on its own shoulders. And it's only worth a buck. I don't think that's as much as they would have liked. Speaking to CNBC after the decision, the energy minister, His Royal Highness Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, uh, said to our very own Dan that he wanted to keep options open on whether to extend the voluntary cuts. I think uh, we did... Uh a full package which will uh, hopefully sustain us uh, and bring about clarity and, and visibility to our uh, full intentions of what we want to do this year, the rest of this year, I mean next year, and even the preparatory work that we are uh, putting together, hopefully by mid-year uh, next year we will have new baselines and uh, a way forward that makes it more equitable, more fair, for everybody uh, to, uh, to, to, to assign for them uh, production levels that is going to be commensurate uh, with their uh, capacities in the most transparent way. And uh, we believe that there are institutions that can do the work and they are independent and they are reliable. Uh, and reliability is subjective, but I can't think of any better than the three that we have chosen. What about the Saudi lollipop, this one million barrel cut from July with the option to extend? Why was that move necessary? Well, I said lollipop, but then at the end I said it's the icing of the, of the cake. Uh, both, I think, it's very important that people realize that it was not 
something uh, that was a part of a package or because I'm sure that there are those who would say uh, it was a tit for tat thing you, but you have a, every meaningful way of verifying that not a single person who had attended these meetings had even heard of what number we will do nor we have uh, forwarded our proposals with this uh, in mind or we have forward that this proposal with this thing uh, attached to it. Uh, we did that, uh, if, I, if you may recall, that in February uh, 21, and it went on for, uh, uh, you know, it depends on the situation then was much more severe. Uh, that's why, you know, we, we wanted to keep the option that uh, it is extendable because it is all going to be subject on how things will evolve. We've seen oil prices fall about 10% in May, despite the cuts that are already in place. What is this latest measure going to mean for oil market balances and market stability in the second half? One of the funny things that uh, people sometimes uh, deduce and write about, uh, without going to the original language, in April, when we all, uh, eight or nine countries issued our individual, which we have uh, uh, reissued today to talk about 24, uh, we, we use the word precautionary. Now, precautionary, the word means we're hedging, which is hedging against an unknown. That doesn't mean we're placing uh, an, an affirmative or a definitive judgment about how the market uh, will be. It was just our sensibility, if you would call it, that the environment is uh, not sufficiently uh, uh, allowing confidence to, to, be, uh, to be there. So taking a precautionary measure uh, tend to put you on the safe side. This is, and it is part of the, the, the typical rhythm that we have installed uh, in OPEC, which is being proactive, being preemptive, uh, uh, that tool uh, is with us. So it doesn't mean that we have certainty about things may go sour or left or right. Well, look, there, this is unbelievably... I've always, as you know, been obsessed and fascinated by the oil markets as well. But the fact that you've got, dare I say it, the leader of OPEC, uh, His Royal Highness Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, having rows with speculators, having rows with the IEA, having rows with certain journalists, and I know those journalists, and they're all excellent, and banning them from the OPEC meeting as well, uh, and actually having that amazing interview with Dan as well. Is this a sign that they've got control of the oil market? I don't know. I'm reading bullish comment from, I've got Goldman's, I've seen RBC, I'm seeing, oh, it's all coming into my inbox as well. Everyone's like, yeah, it's moderately bullish. But, but Saudi having to go alone, to have to accept that it's going to lose market share. They're going to accept that the $80 a barrel it needs for Brent to balance its books over at the finance ministry for all its spending plans as well. Uh, is this a sign of strength from OPEC at the moment or actually a sign of weakness? Now, we know that supplies and inventories have gone down very, very aggressively, and then they're blaming the speculators for this decline in the oil price as well. But it is stunningly below where the Saudis want it to be and expect it to be. Uh, and my basic question is, what do they know about demand that we don't? Because if demand is that weak that you can actually cut another million barrels a day on your own, and actually the, the oil price only rallies by a buck, really? 
I would just say, you know, you've got the Saudis throwing down the gauntlet here to the market to speculators, which means that you want to prove that there are two sides to the coin in terms of a bet here on oil prices. But if all the other producers are effectively not going to come to the party in terms of stepping up with production cuts, that means there is heavy lifting by just one player, and that's the Saudis. So how do you, you keep that bit alive in the markets that you are somewhat of a, an unknown uh, factor for markets in terms of placing bets when it's just you at this stage. And I feel like it was a very bad hand that was played over the weekend if that's exactly what the Saudis want to do, keep the markets guessing on the direction from here. Dan, um, absolutely brilliant interview with His Royal Highness as well, in Vienna as well. What's the feeling? Because, again, you've had another million barrels a day taken out. What are we up? 4.6 million taken off the table now. And the prices net-net are still lower year on year. That's exactly right, Stephen. Good morning to you and Karen. Good morning, everyone. Great conversation here on Squawk. Let's continue the conversation, add another layer into this analysis. Very pleased to say that Halima Croft of RBC Capital Markets joins me now. And who better to help us understand the implications and the ins and outs of this OPEC meeting? Halima, your latest note is basically titled OPEC here ticking multiple boxes. Can you explain what that means? No, they got a lot of work done on Sunday. Saudi Arabia came out with another blockbuster cut, one million barrels a day, unilateral. Some would say, well, they couldn't get the band together for the cut, but the Saudis backwards with barrels. So the fact that Saudi is going alone, I think gives credibility that the cut will actually happen. But we had the big baseline reduction, I mean, increase for the United Arab Emirates. Like that is something they have wanted, they've pushed for since 2021. And so that is a big win for the UAE. They get this done before turning their attention to COP28. So you could say UAE was a big winner for the weekend. But you also have the African nations agreeing to take a reduction in their quotas. They are underperforming their quotas. They agreed to collectively take about a 600,000 barrel a day reduction for 2024. So a lot of work got accomplished on Sunday. It wasn't always easy. We weren't sure they were going to land the plane, but essentially by the end, everyone is at the table and they presented a unified message. And the market reaction here also seems to vindicate that Saudi Arabia decision because we've seen oil prices pop off the back. What do you think it means for market balances in the second half of the year and ultimately the trajectory of prices from here? I mean, one question that market participants will have is they announced it as a one month cut. The question is, will they see through this, you know, million barrel a day extra cut for a multi-month period? But obviously people will be adding this to the potential deficits that we're going to see in terms of balances. So it is a materially significant announcement that the Saudis made. Also coming out of this, big questions about Russia's future role as an oil producer. And this is interesting, right, because Russia could also perhaps claim a win here. They've walked away. They don't have to change their production cuts. What does it mean for Russia long term, though, and is Russia's best days as an oil producer ahead of it? I mean, I think that is the key question, because going into this meeting, there was so much talk about potential Saudi-Russia rift. They looked at Russia's increasing market share in Asia and said, will Saudi Arabia fight to get that market share back? But one of the things I think people miss is we see an increasing flow of Middle Eastern barrels to Europe. Russia has lost access to its most important market. So yes, it's pushing into Asia, but it's having to accept an incredible discount. There are significant sanctions headwinds facing the Russian energy sector over the medium term. So if you were Saudi Arabia, you could potentially look at this as a temporary loss of market share. And I think it's also important to remember European countries 
feared a major energy crisis when they basically announced that embargo. The Saudis, the Emiratis, the Kuwaitis, they decided to send those barrels to Europe as an assist to those nations. So again, it is an act of war request that they answered on the part of Europe. Really good point on the battle for market share into Asia. But I have another question, and that is, how are the Americans going to react? What are you hearing about how the administration Fantastic thinks about this? Fantastic question, because we were here in October when the surprise $2 million barrel a day cut was announced. Right. The reaction was incredibly strong and incredibly negative from Washington. This time we're hearing the U.S.-Saudi relationship is so important. There has been such a sort of a reset and a refocus. Tony Blinken is going to the kingdom. And so I think the administration is basically saying we can handle this cut. Look where prices are now. They don't anticipate a massive rally in retail gasoline prices. So they basically are willing to accept this decision. And I don't think it's going to cause any significant rift in the bilateral relationship. I'm Rita Sin at Energy Aspects told me last hour that she now expects triple digit oil by the end of the year. What's your view? I mean, we have the view that this is a significant cut. We had already talked about seeing, you know, Brent prices returning into the 90s, you know, by the end of the year. I think there are lots of interesting moving targets that we haven't even talked about. You know, do we potentially see something involving Iran? But this is a material cut. It is significant. And again, I think OPEC has shown in Saudi Arabia in particular, they're back in whatever it takes mode in terms of trying to really kickstart this oil price recovery. Yeah, exactly. The whatever it takes moment. Halima, we're out of time. We'll leave it there. But thank you so much thank for joining for us today. Me. Always appreciate it, guys. That is Halima Croft of RBC Capital Markets. We'll bring you more analysis throughout the course of the hour. We're live in Vienna. It's back over to you. Done excellent work with Abdulaziz bin Salman. Excellent work with Amrita and indeed Halima as well. And apparently your new fashion range, the OPEC Plus Dan Murphy range, will be out soon with the, the white gilet. Looking good. <laughs> oh, it's gone. You pulled the plug on that. I never wore that when I went to OPEC. Looks pretty good, doesn't he? Yeah. Pretty sharp. Did you just never go to any sort of summer meetings? Did you just miss out? <laughs> there weren't too many. No, because no. I mean, look, OPEC has had many meetings over the years during the year as well. I mean, it's not uncommon to have six plus. Mm. But actually, then it went to kind of a spring meeting, which was very cold, and then an autumn meeting as well, which could be very, very hot as well. But I have to say, I mean, rocking the, the, the gilet and jumper look. It's special. It's special. I missed out there, didn't I? A different generation. Uh, coming up on the show, we'll be joined by the Malaysia Airlines Group CEO, Izam Ismail, uh, from the IATA AGM in Istanbul. Don't miss that. Another first on CNBC interview after this break. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Leaders in the aviation sector are meeting at the IATA AGM in Istanbul. Dan spoke to Air France KLM CEO Benjamin Smith and began by asking how the aviation sector is faring. We're seeing a you know, robust demand on the transatlantic, so to, uh, to US, uh, Canada, uh, Mexico, very robust demand to, uh, to Latin America 
and then uh, Africa has been very resilient uh, through the uh, through the pandemic. It's still resilient now. Where we're not seeing uh, a return to pre-pandemic levels, domestic France. I think there's a structural shift to the train. The train option is uh, quite a good option in France. So we see a big reduction in demand. And then Asia, of course, is a challenge because of the current uh, Russian overflight ban. But overall, strong demand with the exception of those two. And Benjamin, Air France KLM has seen years of massive losses, not just as a result of COVID, but because of other issues as well. How are you taking advantage of the improvement in fundamentals within the industry to advance and push forward your earnings trajectory here? So we start with our fleet. Uh, I mean, we've been through, you know, we've been going through transformation well before we started a big transformation program, well before COVID started. We made a decision ahead of any other carrier to remove our Airbus A380 airplanes. Uh, those were not uh, producing the necessary margins uh, for us. And we accelerated that, obviously, when COVID, uh, COVID kicked in. Uh, so that's at the top end of our fleet. That's what we decided first, all the way down to uh, our regional fleet. We're doing a lot of uh, refleeting, so the, uh, the cost of uh, the unit cost of our fleet is coming much, you know, going down very quickly. Let's continue the conversation. Izem Ismail joins us now, Group CEO of Malaysia Airlines. Izem, thank you so much for joining us. Let me just kick off a question about demand, where the picture looks like at this stage. We've got the China reopening in the region. What sort of bounce back are you seeing in 2023? Good morning, Karen from Istanbul. Uh, demand has been fantastic from the Asia-Pacific Asia region. Uh, with China reopening, we have we've seen uh, extensive demand coming up from South Asia, India, Australia, and likewise in the ASEAN region. Uh, we, we expect and we forecast that the Asia-Pacific region, while it lags behind the world uh, global uh, recovery, in, in the context of capacity, but we're confident that Asia-Pacific will attain approximately 90% of its capacity um, as compared to pre-pandemic. Can I ask you about how you intend to ramp up for the demand story? I know a number of airlines have been ordering new aircraft. At this stage, it looks like you've got a delivery of four out of 25 Boeing 7378s coming uh, later on this year. How significant is it uh, that you're taking uh, more supply into the system at this point to try and meet that demand? Karen, for, for Malaysia, uh, Malaysia Airlines and for Malaysia Aviation Group, it's not about adding additional uh, airplanes into our network. It's actually replacing the aging narrow bodies, the 737 with our Maxis, which is due to arrive uh, August this year, four of them. And next year, we'll be replacing our aging A330 fleet to the A330-900 or A330-NEWS. So Malaysia Airlines is not adding capacity aggressively. We are just doing a fleet renewal campaign. Um, there are many objectives that Malaysia Aviation Group have, or Malaysia Airlines specifically have to, drive, have to achieve um, in the context of product, our customer experience, efficiency, in the context of fuel efficiency and so forth. That is um, Malaysia Airlines uh, proposition at this moment. A very good morning to you, sir. What are the greatest risks at the moment as far as you can see? This is a notoriously, dare I say, a high beta sector that responds on a hair trigger to global events. What are you most concerned about 
uh, that could derail what sounds like a very positive story, sir? Hello, Steve. Yes, uh, aviation industry has been subjected to many economic uh, uncertainties, uh, volatility, so to speak. From the pandemic right up to now, facing high fuel prices uh, with high escalating interest rate that demonstrate how resilient this industry is. But for us personal, for, for us at the group in Malaysia Airline, uh, moving forward, interest rate, foreign exchange rates are one of the critical factors that is always be putting our eye on. Of course, not, not forgetting uh, the uncertainty, the volatility of fuel prices uh, at the marketplace. So those are the challenges that uh, the group has to uh, ensure that we have mitigate all those risks moving forward, but uh, supported by a very lean balance sheet that we have attained uh, post-pandemic, uh, that gives us in a better position for us to move forward in, in, in the future. Um, Malaysia Airlines have attained a very healthy operating profit last year, uh, 556 million uh, ringgit. And quarter one this year has been fantastic as well, 453 million uh, uh, net income after tax. And quarter two look, looking, looking very strong. So with all those mitigation that we see as our risks uh, on fuel, foreign exchange, interest rate, um, it's, it's working well for us with our long-term business plan. Uh, and finally, for me, so you mentioned a couple of those big risks at the top. You talked about Forex and interest rates. But I want to focus on what you said as your second point, if I may, sir. And that was about jet fuel prices, oil prices. as well. They look stunningly stable at the moment, despite uh, the efforts from OPEC and OPEC Plus to get prices to a higher level as well. Do you have any, see any trend that our, our viewers can cling on to in, in the oil price at the moment, in jet fuel price as well? Because as far as I can see, it looks a very benign environment as we speak, sir. I agree with you, Steve. No, you know, fuel is something that uh, airline CEOs doesn't have a crystal ball. All we could do is best bet and see the trend is moving. But I do see that um, the fuel price is stabling, stabling for 2023, and I don't see a spike moving forward for the next two quarters at least. But you never know. Um, with the economic environment turning um, being so unstable, it might just... Um, become, it, it might just turn south. But for Malaysia Airlines, we've actually kept that as our risk and we've actually ensured that we budget it um, consistently. And the hedging, uh, the hedging practice of most airlines comes into play the, uh, to manage our, the fuel costs uh, moving forward. It remains as a concern uh, to all airline CEOs and to us as well in Malaysia Airlines. And fuel remains our focus. And for Malaysia Airlines, we, are, we, we operate in an environment where 60% of our cost is in US dollars. Forex, uh, with the weakening ringgit, is also our concern. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.